Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Testing and Screening for Type 1 Diabetes, T1D, Genes, Antigens, Autoantibodies, Methodology, and Clinical Utility, is jointly provided by Partners for Advancing Clinical Education, PACE, and Health Matters CME, and is supported by an independent educational grant from Provention Bio. Prior to beginning the activity, Please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, everyone. My name is uh, Dr. Mark Atkinson. I'm director of the Diabetes Institute at the University of Florida and a member of the Departments of Pathology and Pediatrics here. I'm here today to help lead discussion on what I think is one of the most important emerging topics in the field of type 1 diabetes and that is that of autoantibody screening to identify the risk of individuals uh, for this disease. This slide that you see here, it actually brings back a lot of memories. I started my uh, career in type one diabetes some 40 years ago. And in 1983, I used to work a lot in this situation like you see on the right side of the screen here, uh, drawing blood from individuals with the hope of identifying those at risk for the disease. Back then, that was a dream of mine that we would see this occur. I never thought it would take almost four decades to occur, but right now, I believe we're at that point. And it's an honor today to bring three internationally recognized experts in the field of type 1 diabetes together in order to help bring you, the audience, together on a number of issues and matters related to autoantibody screening for type 1 diabetes risk. This will be a very positive presentation, I believe, for reasons that it is a very positive message. Our first speaker will be Dr. Emily Sims, who is a much respected uh, rising superstar in pediatric endocrinology. She is uh, coming to us from Indiana University in Indianapolis. And she's going to introduce the topic to us. So, Emily, it's up to you. Thank you. Thanks for that um, really nice introduction, Mark. And thank you to everyone who's tuning in um, and paying attention today. Um, I'm going to talk to you about testing and screening for type 1 diabetes, um, genes, antigens, autoantibodies, methodology, and clinical utility. So I thought I would start this talk with a little bit of an introduction to type 1 diabetes and the pathophysiology underlying type 1 diabetes. Um, we know that type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease that leads to destruction of the insulin-producing beta cells in your pancreas. And we also know that people who ultimately develop type 1 diabetes start with some sort of genetic predisposition to disease. Um, if you have a first-degree relative with type 1 diabetes, your risk is about 15-fold compared to someone who doesn't have a relative. Although, interestingly, most people who present with new type 1 diabetes do not have a family history. Um, and then people um, with genetic predisposition encounter some sort of environmental trigger that tips the scales towards islet autoimmunity. And if this process um, goes unchecked and progresses, you have eventual loss of beta cells and beta cell function that initially leads to changes in your blood sugar and ultimately frank hyperglycemia with symptoms of polyuria and polydipsia and ultimately the need for exogenous insulin. 
So you might say, why do I care about type 1 diabetes? Well, it's here and it's increasing. So this is a graph of um, the incidence of type 1 diabetes over time in many different countries, including the United States, shown in a darkish purple color towards the middle of the graph, but you can see that the incidence of type 1 diabetes is increasing over time. So it's something that we should be paying attention to. Another thing people might say as well, type 1 diabetes is bad, but we've got a pretty good treatment for type 1 diabetes. We have insulin. And indeed, we're just coming upon the 100th anniversary of insulin being discovered by Banting and Best. And man, this is a really amazing drug. When you think about patients who had a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes before this discovery and the impact that it had on their lives, it's really incredible to consider. These are pictures of two of Dr. Banting's most famous patients, Teddy Ryder and Elizabeth Hughes, before insulin was available to patients with type 1 diabetes and then after they were treated with insulin. Um, and as you can see, indeed, insulin really has been transformative for patients with type 1 diabetes. And then, you know, since that time period, we've really had remarkable advancements in the care that we can provide to our patients with type 1 diabetes. And this has ranged from um, discoveries that has improved our ability to monitor glucose, most recently with CGMs or glucose monitors that allow for continuous glucose monitoring, um, as well as changes in the way that we deliver insulin, um, most recently with um, insulin pumps that talk to glucose sensors and um, have semi-automated delivery that can really improve the um, patient burden and the quality of life of our patients. But even so, um, I would argue that we really have a long ways to go in uh, the way that we provide care to our patients. And the reasons I say this are multifold. Um, first of all, um, we know that life expectancy is still reduced in people who have type 1 diabetes. Um, so these are data from the um, Scottish Diabetes Registry, which is a registry um, that follows everyone in the country with type 1 diabetes who's over age 20. And you can see life expectancy data um, in these graphs for men on the left and women on the right. Um, and as you can see, compared to someone who doesn't have type 1 diabetes, um, the life expectancy for people with diabetes is reduced by um, 11 to 13 years, depending on sex. And so, you know, some people might say, well, we know that some of these complications that can reduce life expectancy and cause morbidity and mortality and diabetes can be reduced if you can just maintain glycemia in the goal range where our targets are. But this is really hard too. So these are data for the, from the type 1 diabetes exchange registry, which is a um, registry in the United States of endocrine clinics. Um, and these are hemoglobin A1C data from people um, with type 1 diabetes from 2010 through 2012, which are shown in orange and um, 2016 to 2018, which are shown in blue, and the solid line um, in dark navy or, or black underneath is the, the goal A1C at the time. In fact, the goals for pediatrics have, have decreased since these data were published. Um, but as you can see, unfortunately, for all age groups, um, we're kind of not meeting those goal metrics, and this is especially true for, for pediatric age groups and, and people in that adolescent age group. So another kind of really important complication to consider is even um, before we have a chance to intervene in people's diabetes, there's also the risk of diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA at the time of type 1 diabetes onset. So in the United States, depending on um, where you're located, rates of DKA typically range from 25 to 50% at diagnosis, and they appear to be increasing over time. The graph on this slide shows DKA rates from the Barbara Davis Center in Colorado and rates over time from the private and public insurance type 1 diabetes populations. And as you can see, over time, they're increasing, and most recently, we're above 50%. As we all know, taking care of patients with DKA, this can be associated with significant short-term morbidity and mortality, including um, cerebral edema, risk of DVTs, and hyperosmolarity. And additionally, just the kind of stress for a family and a patient of an ICU admission, which is potentially or, or definitely associated with additional um, significant cost. 
And then we also know that there are long-term impacts of this on neurologic function in children especially and long-term glycemic control. So these are um, also data that came from the Barbara Davis Center um, in which the investigators modeled the effect of DKA on long-term hemoglobin A1C values in people with type 1 diabetes and adjusted for potential other confounders that might impact that long-term A1C. And as you can see, the people who presented with severe DKA who are shown on the red line um, compared with people who didn't have DKA di diagnosis who are shown in the black dash line had about an average of 1.4% increase in their A1C over time. So again, presenting with DKA diagnosis um, can lead to long-term impacts on glycemic control, which we know are important for long-term um, health outcomes in type 1 diabetes. So what's the case for screening for type 1 diabetes? Well, the first thing is that we can do it. Um, we can effectively screen for and identify asymptomatic or presymptomatic type 1 diabetes. How do we do this? Well, we do it via measurement of islet autoantibodies. And so these are the four biochemical autoantibody assays that are currently most widely available that you will see a lot of people use. Um, these include insulin, or it's abbreviated as IAA, islet antigen 2, or IA2, zinc transporter 8, or ZNT8, and glutamic acid decarboxylase, or GAD65. These are all um, beta cell autoantigens that immune system is picking up and you can recognize as autoantibodies in blood. And this idea that we can identify people in this very early asymptomatic or presymptomatic stage of type 1 diabetes first got a lot of traction from these data that were published in JAMA in 2013 and combined data from three different birth cohorts um, from different locations. And importantly, that included um, populations of people both who had a family history of type 1 diabetes, but also people who didn't have a family history. So they were from the general population. And so this was a group of over 500 children that were followed over time for development of islet autoantibodies antibodies and type 1 diabetes. And what the investigators found was that once these children developed more than one of these islet autoantibodies, by 15 years of follow-up, about 84% of them had developed type 1 diabetes, such that over a lifetime, once you develop multiple islet autoantibodies, your risk of developing clinical disease really approaches 100%. And based on this, the type 1 diabetes community has adopted this staging system where now we consider what we used to think of as the diagnosis or the start of type 1 diabetes, the clinical diagnosis is stage 3 disease. And if you develop multiple islet autoantibodies, because we know that your long-term risk of type 1 diabetes or clinical type 1 diabetes is almost 100%, now we call that stage 1 diabetes. And then someone who has multiple islet autoantibodies plus um, changes in their glucose but hasn't met those ADA criteria to diagnose diabetes, that's stage two type one diabetes. And then again, stage three would be what we traditionally considered clinical diagnosis of disease, meaning those kind of classic criteria for diabetes based on A1C um, in the two hour of the fasting glucose. So I think there are a lot of natural questions that come from these data. Um, the first being, well, when would you expect these islet autoantibodies to develop? And the great news is that we have some really good information from some of these natural history birth cohorts that can inform us um, in these questions. So um, these are data from the baby diab study that followed infants at genetic risk um, for the development of autoantibodies and diabetes. As you can see, um, there's actually this period between nine and two years of age when most islet autoantibodies develop in these genetically at risk infants. Um, and not all antibodies are created equal. There's a difference in kind of which antibodies most commonly occur first. As shown in these data, insulin autoantibodies actually are the ones that, that tend to appear um, first in these infants um, that, that ultimately develop islet autoantibodies. 
Additionally, not all antibodies are created equal with what they mean in terms of subsequent risk of rates of progression of diabetes. So I thought these data are really interesting, are looking at children from the Frida cohort. Um, so these are individuals from the general population who um, were screened for autoantibodies um, and then followed for um, diabetes development after they developed autoantibodies. And so they were really interested in looking at risk factors for the rate of progression to diabetes once you got to stage one. So you developed multiple islet autoantibodies what risk factors mean that you're going to develop clinical diabetes sooner. One thing that the investigators found was that the presence of a positive IA2 antibody titer or higher IA2 antibody titer was associated with more rapid progression of clinical diabetes, so associated with increased risk versus some of the other islet antibodies. And finally, um, there's been a growing recognition that there are probably different phenotypes within type 1 diabetes. So not everybody's type 1 diabetes acts exactly the same. Some people have um, a more severe phenotype um, and different progression of disease, maybe different clinical features. And some of this seems to also be connected to islet autoantibodies. Um, so in the TEDI study, which stands for the Environmental Determinants of the Young, it's another birth cohort um, of people with family members and from the general population at increased genetic risk followed over time for islet autoantibodies and diabetes, the investigators have determined that there seems to be a different phenotype depending on whether children develop insulin antibodies or GAD antibodies first. Children who develop insulin antibodies typically, again, develop the antibody early in the first year of life and have a younger age of diabetes onset, tend to be boys, although both sexes can have this phenotype, um, and tend to have higher risk HLA genotypes compared to people who develop GAD antibodies first, who actually can develop antibodies more commonly throughout early childhood, have an older age of diabetes onset, um, tend to be girls and have lower risk HLA genotypes. Okay, so when should we be doing this screening? Well, this is a complicated question, and a lot of people have proposed different approaches to this. Um, there are a few things to think about. We know that seroconversion um, typically happens very early, and so we really want to capture really young individuals who are going to progress early to diabetes and we know are at high risk of presenting with DKA that can be really life-threatening, but we also don't want to miss people who develop autoantibodies later. So we have to kind of balance sensitivity as well as participant burden with multiple checks. And so people have had different approaches for what might be the best way to, to do this. People from the Teddy study have a really smart analysis, um, which is shown on this slide. Here you can see in the rainbow colored graph, um, a plot of the cumulative risk of getting any islet autoantibodies, depending on what age you are. As your age increases for these genetically at risk individuals, your risk of developing antibodies decreases over time. Um, and then they looked at your five-year risk of getting multiple antibodies, so stage one classification. The risk is very high in those first two years and then really starts decreasing over time such that by the time you get to seven or eight years of age, it's pretty small. And so these investigators looked at combining two different age time points to see what was the best benefit or the best balance of sensitivity and positive predictive value. And um, what they came up with is that maybe the best approach to screening would be doing autoantibody testing at two years, followed by another test in that five to seven year period so that you're kind of capturing those very early severe presentations, but then also getting people who develop autoantibodies a little bit later in childhood. So other people have taken different approaches. Some natural history studies do testing every year in people who are high genetic risk. 
But, you know, those are studies that are designed to understand natural history and, and not necessarily think so much about feasibility and costs. And other programs have thought more about um, balancing sensitivity and costs. So, example, for example, Type 1 Diabetes Trial Net, which is an international program that provides free autoantibody screening to family members of people with type 1 diabetes, um, repeats testing yearly for people who test single antibody positive, but don't necessarily meet that early stage, stage one criteria. Um, and additionally, they currently don't do rescreening for people who test antibody negative, although this policy is being revisited there's more data that that suggests that we can kind of reconsider this. So for example, um, people who have single autoantibody positivity, we know that at first they're probably at higher risk compared to someone who screens autoantibody negative, but we can kind of look back at natural history data to see that long-term um, their risk gradually decreases over time. So the graph on the bottom right of the screen is again data from the baby diab study that looked at um, children who seroconverted to single autoantibody positivity and they converted to multiple antibody positivity if they did. Um, and as you can see, most of these people who went on to develop multiple islet autoantibodies, it really happened in the first couple of years after they tested positive for single autoantibodies. So it may be that looking back at some of this data, we can kind of refine our policies for testing. And, and as an example, for single antibody positive individuals, after a couple of years, if they haven't progressed to stage one, we may be able to back off on screening. And then additionally, I think another caveat is that, in my opinion, um, the optimal testing or timing of testing or screening for adult onset type 1 diabetes has not been super rig rigorously tested and, and needs to be better studied. Okay, so we talked about autoantibodies. There are also some other measures that people are really interested in for identifying people at increased risk. Um, this includes genetic and metabolic screening. The genetic screening typically tests for high-risk HLA genotypes and also additional genes that might increase risk. A lot of people are incorporating these into a risk score that's easier to interpret and apply. This kind of testing is often applied as part of screening programs that test newborns because it requires a pretty small amount of blood and can use a capillary stick or a blood spot. This would still require antibody testing, but the idea would be that you would carve out a population of people who are at high genetic risk so that you have to test less people for autoantibodies over time. A lot of people are really interested in metabolic testing as well. Um, this can include testing of C-peptide, insulin, and glucose, as well as markers of beta cell stress and health. This kind of testing is often performed as part of an oral glucose tolerance test, which can be really useful for staging, whether you're in stage one or stage two type one diabetes, but also for monitoring of progression to, to stage three or clinical diabetes. And this testing is often used to really better understand once people have developed early stage type one diabetes, what their uh, risk is for how quickly they're gonna progress to stage three disease. I will say that um, both of these tools are very useful, but right now are probably mostly utilized as part of research protocols. But I think people should stay tuned because I think they can both be really helpful in carving out people higher and lower risk and making um, screening more feasible um, for, for widespread use. So I think they're gonna become more and more used. So back to the case for screening, I hope I've convinced you we can effectively identify asymptomatic type 1 diabetes, but what can we do about it? I think there are a couple of important goals that this screening can achieve, especially if you also educate and monitor participants. The first one is that we can prevent DKA onset. These are data from multiple um, screening studies that show the expected rate of DKA without screening on the far right, and then the DKA rates that um, they actually observed in the studies with um, screening, education, and monitoring. And as you can see, the rates are reduced by about three to tenfold, so really, really drastically reduced um, when you intervene in these populations and educate them about type 1 diabetes, risk of DKA, and then follow them for the development of diabetes. 
Additionally, there are a couple of other really important things that we can accomplish um, with type 1 diabetes uh, screening. The first is this idea that you provide these families the opportunity to have a more smooth progression into the diagnosis of clinical type 1 diabetes. If you think of the way that this has traditionally happened, these families overnight get this diagnosis and their world changes and they start on insulin, have to do this really fast education, and it can be a really stressful experience. Um, and probably not the best way to, to learn about type 1 diabetes and, and how to get this new type of care that, that really involves big lifestyle changes. But someone who's identified through screening, you know, they have time to kind of process, get education, and work with their pediatric endocrinologist to get a plan to slowly start insulin as they need it. Um, and so it, it can potentially be a lot better. And then finally, I'm not going to talk about this very much because this is um, the focus of Dr. Gittleman's session, but identifying people in early stage type 1 diabetes also identifies people um, where there are opportunities for intervention with disease-modifying therapies that can potentially change the course of their disease. Another really important point I just wanted to touch on is that screening can be performed in the United States and is really very accessible. This is a really handy chart from asktheexperts.org, um, which is a program that's associated with the ASK um, Research Screening Pro Program in Colorado, um, and it provides information on different screening programs that are available to people in the United States. If it's possible, I would recommend getting involved in a research-based program, which um, will be free to participants and also um, automatically provide monitoring and follow-up, usually depending on the program, depending on where you're located, ask, cascade, and pledge can be options for this um, for people in the general population. And then for everyone in the United States, um, type 1 diabetes trial net is available um, to family members um, who are first or second degree relatives of people with type 1 diabetes. Um, this can be obtained in person or families can actually order a kit online to do home testing um, through capillary sticks. So it can be really, really convenient. Um, there's also direct consumer testing available through Enable Biosciences. Um, as well as um, testing that, that PCPs can order through clinical laboratories for their patients. So what are the current guidelines from our diabetes organizations? Um, the American Diabetes Association in their most recent guidelines said that screening can be considered an option in first-degree family members, but otherwise is currently recommended in the setting of a research trial. One thing to think of about this is that, you know, unfortunately, most people that present with type 1 diabetes, again, don't have a family member. Um, so what about people in the general population? ISPAD, or the International Society of Pediatric and Adolescent Diabetes, and their most recent guidelines actually address this a little more directly. So they kind of acknowledge the benefits of screening that we already talked about, including identifying early diabetes, reducing decay and hospitalization, and potential for intervention. They highlighted that screening should be associated with education and monitoring, but that also that general population programs can um, be useful to identify high-risk children. Um, and interestingly, they commented that when immunotherapies capable of delaying progression are approved and economic issues are optimized for screening, that they expect general pediatric population screening to be implemented in many regions. Um, so I think this is something we should all be paying attention to that's potentially coming. All right, so to summarize my session, I hope I've convinced you that we need to improve our current treatment strategies for type 1 diabetes um, and that uh, screening for islet autoantibodies can identify people who have pre-symptomatic disease and is widely accessible, particularly for people um, who are family members of people with type 1 diabetes who can get free screening through TrialNet. And then additionally, that um, there is a lot of potential benefits for this early identification of type 1 diabetes in these early stages, including a smoother transition to insulin treatment, 
um, drastically reducing DKA and hospitalization at diagnosis and allowing for the possibility of intervention with disease-modifying therapies. My opinion is that major needs in this area moving forward include clear guidelines for monitoring and follow-up of people who have positive screens, um, as well as a clear pathway and, and plan for testing, monitoring, and um, intervention in people who don't have a family history who, again, represent most of the people who present with type 1 diabetes. Emily, thank you so much for that amazing introduction to this topic. I think you covered it extremely well. Um, one of the things I think we get used to in medical research is we hear about a study where 300 patients were uh, subject to a research investigation and then an outcome comes. Can you just, again, reemphasize the difference of the situation here in terms of the number of people that globally or uh, have been examined in terms of screening and, and the amount of time that it's taken to get to this point? Yeah, I mean, this is a great question. I think this is something that's been decades and decades in the making, right? Um, so um, Dr. Patazzo in the 1970s was the kind of first person who um, discovered that people who are at risk for type 1 diabetes have these islet autoantibodies in their blood. And since then, there's been tons and tons of researchers working on kind of optimizing these assays so that they're reproducible. Um, and we have really great data that they work really well um, to identify and predict um, the onset of um, type 1 diabetes. The data I showed from um, the 2013 JAMA paper that com combined birth cohorts had data from over 500 kids who developed type 1 diabetes, but you know, thousands and thousands of children with islet autoantibodies have been studied um, over long, 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 long periods of time. So we have some really rich natural history data um, that have given us this information with lots of people working together um, to provide it. The other study that I think has been really informative, um, at least for the United States, has been the diabetes prevention trial type 1, um, which was a prevention trial to test the effect of um, giving insulin um, to delay or prevent the onset of type 1 diabetes. But as part of that study, which was implemented in the 1990s and reported in the early 2000s, um, it required identifying lots of people who are at high risk. And so they they really showed that you were really able to effectively identify and follow these individuals um, and then kind of built up this, this rich natural history cohort that, that we've really used to accumulate a lot of important information about diabetes risk and progression and has led to a lot of other really important studies. Great, Emily. Thank you for that answer. So I know from personal experience, this is a what I would define as a low-risk procedure. But in case anybody's at, has fears about this, um, can you just define or, or say why I'm right that this is a low-risk procedure in terms of a blood draw? Yeah, I totally agree with you. This is very low risk. So the only, you know, physical risk associated with this testing would be the risk associated with the blood draw. It's a pretty small volume of blood. So, you know, it's not something that's going to give anybody any symptoms or anything, but just the kind of discomfort that you'd associate with getting your blood drawn. Even some of the testing is is capillary sticks as well, um, which can be even more convenient and, and takes less volume. Um, the other kind of thing that you, you might think of is the risk that's associated with getting testing, you know, waiting for the result of the test. And, and the kind of anxiety associated with that. But we actually have um, pretty good data about that as well from, from some of the natural history studies that have been performed um, that suggest that, yeah, you know, people do have increased anxiety when they first get a result about, you know, being at risk for type 1 diabetes, but that that um, subsides pretty quickly over time. And that when you look at 
um, the anxiety that those families have at the time of diagnosis, it's much, much, much reduced compared to families who haven't had the opportunity to get um, education and monitoring ahead of time um, when the, the period of diagnosis is a, a super, super stressful, life-changing time. And, and you would say that this test is amenable to people in either urban or rural populations. This is not a test that's just limited to people in major cities, meaning this could be uh, it, at least in the United States and globally, a test that could be used no matter where their geographic locale. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, how you get the test depends on, you know, your path to testing, how you choose to get the testing. But um, the clinical lab testing is really widely available. I, I mean, I think probably at almost every hospital. Um, and then the really nice thing about the type 1 diabetes trial net program is that they've worked really hard to make testing convenient for families so that they can um, order a test kit online even and have the kit shipped to their house um, for, for testing locally, which is great. All right. And my last question for here in this session is you showed the risk, various risk factors based on the type of antibody and BMI was one of the risk factors. Are, are these autoantibody markers thought to be specific for type 1 diabetes, or is this something that is present in individuals with type 2 diabetes? I would usually say that someone who has islet autoimmunity has, has type 1 diabetes. Um, although this is kind of an interesting question because I think especially in adults, a lot of times people get diagnosed with type 2 diabetes um, and uh, they're misdiagnosed. They actually have type 1 diabetes. Um, and so if people had thought to check for the islet autoantibodies, they, they might have realized that. So I think that um, sometimes it is underdiagnosed in adults. And then the other thing I would say about that is that you know, sometimes people can have a little bit of a mixed picture. You know, we know type 2 diabetes results from people inheriting a predisposition to beta cell function um, and uh, some insulin resistance. So you can certainly also inherit those things as well as islet autoimmunity. That can give you kind of a mixed picture. But typically, people who have islet autoimmunity are going to require insulin administration um, consistent with type 1 diabetes. So to that answer, which was a great one, actually, there's a, a potential benefit throughout an individual's lifetime, right? Meaning you gave a lot of data about early life screening, but in somebody that in later life um, may be not performing well or responding well, I should say, to uh, traditional type 2 medications, if, if they have screening, maybe that could identify them as being uh, essentially uh, misdiagnosed or ineffectively diagnosed as having type 1 diabetes. I totally agree with that statement. And in fact, I mean, I'm a pediatric endocrinologist, but I, I screen everybody with new diabetes with autoantibodies because I think it can be very informative um, for how I'm going to approach care for my patient. Thank you, Dr. Sims, for bringing this very informative presentation to us. I think you've told us a lot about the importance for type 1 diabetes autoantibody screening, laying a intellectual foundation, if you will, and setting a stage for why uh, such uh, an activity is really important for improving healthcare moving forward around type 1 diabetes. Thank you very much. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Partners for Advancing Clinical Education, PACE, and Health Matters CME and is supported by an independent educational grant from Provention Bio.
To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.